Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Excited to welcome to the show today, Stephen Waterhouse, co-founder and CEO of Orchid Labs. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be on the show. So before we get to your background, Stephen, and how you got to start Orchid, how is life these days, you know, with the coronavirus impacting pretty much every city in the world? Curious, you're based in San Francisco. How is it being felt there and how does it impact your team? Uh, well, I think an interesting thing that happened in San Francisco is we had quite a lot of uh, tech um, bloggers and tweeters who were sounding the alarm for uh, quite a bit, um, especially even in January and definitely in February. Um, and I think that we're fortunate in that it's, uh, it's a large tech community here. So a lot of the companies um, implemented work from home um, quite a bit ahead of the national uh, shutdown. And uh, so on the, on the theory that the, um, these lockdowns are going to help prevent um, the, the sort of the, the, the larger outbreak in these regions, I think that's been a good decision. Um, Orchid itself has been always been a decentralized, remote-first uh, company. Um, so the biggest impact to us has been really just cutting back on travel um, and uh, you know, the inability for us to, to hold events. Um, so we're switching a lot of our attention to, um, to internet uh, digital marketing. Um, uh, one interesting thing we have to announce is that uh, we're making Orchid free for journalists. Uh, we're announcing that today. Um, and so we have a program where journalists can apply through Orchid and uh, we'll provide them with free credits on the system. Um, so we're excited to to help, especially right now, there's a lot of uh, concerns around um, increased, like potentially, um, this is obviously potentially a good thing given the current crisis, but as, uh, as we come out of the crisis, there's always a concern that some of the controls that are put in place by governments might not be relaxed. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that in a second. But um, is there now a national lockdown in the States? Like you mentioned that earlier, my sense was it's, it varies quite a bit, I think, between different states, yeah. doesn't it? Um, we have a very localized uh, country, which you start to realize. Um, 
There's very specific state responses. Um, California has been uh, much more aggressive. Um, there's now an advisory for the Bay Area and for California in general for people to stay in their homes or um, keep keep apart from one another. Um, yeah, many of us are, uh, are are either sort of doing have been doing this for a while. I've been I've been in my house for like eleven days now. Um, and uh, so a number of us have taken the initiative to do that earlier. Um, but as far as uh, as far as a countrywide, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact status right now in other parts of the country. I've certainly seen some photos. If you look at um, look at driving directions <clears throat> for any of the major cities uh, around rush hour, you'll see that there are no cars on the road because the traffic um, is just zero. So there's some there's some ways you can kind of actually spy on what's going on in the world. I think my, 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 my bigger concern here is just in general, how do we, without widespread testing, which I hope will be coming into play soon globally, um, uh, the question is how do we know when to uh, stop the lockdowns and the, the open the schools and so on? Like, how do we know what date that's going to be? Because um, so far it seems to be just a guess of if we assume how long things lasted in China or South Korea, then we, we kind of use that as a metric. But without proper uh, widespread testing, we won't really know the extent of uh, whether we're getting less cases or more cases. Um, and if we just increase testing from now onwards, all we're going to see is more cases. So that's not going to help us either. Yeah. One of the things I find really fascinating is just how different governments and different regions are dealing with this um, crisis in a different way, right? Like you see countries like South Korea, for instance, where they just do a massive amount of tests on a daily basis. And then to your point, in other places, it's much more scarce at this point, unfortunately. So Stephen, would love to learn more about your uh, background and how you got to start Orchid Labs. Yeah, sure. So... Um... I've actually been an entrepreneur um, since uh, I graduated my PhD in 97. I moved out to the West Coast um, and was part of the founding team of a number of companies. Uh, I sold a distributed search engine to Sun um, in the early 2000s and then worked on uh, early distributed systems technology, uh, mostly for enterprises. Uh, we were working on um, enterprise storage uh, using uh very cheap commodity hardware at the time. Um, took that to market and a lot of the learnings that I got there uh, translated later into uh, my work on um, on the, the new peer-to-peer technology of uh, cryptocurrency. Um, I uh, actually have experience starting a company in recession. I started a company in 2008 and took it public in 2011, um, uh, focused on the intellectual property space. And then... Um, <clears throat> was part of a team that was acquired by uh, Fortress Investment Group. And in early 2013, when I was at Fortress, uh, I came up with an idea to um, invest in uh, Bitcoin and companies uh, within that ecosystem, which was just starting to develop. Um, and that uh, that initiative at Fortress eventually became Pantera Capital, uh, which we spun out. And so for the next three years, um, I uh, was leading investments in the venture space uh, for Pantera Capital and was lucky enough to work with some incredible companies um, early stages, including Zcash. Um, we were also uh, early stage investors in Bitstamp and Circle 
and uh, many other companies in that area. Um, and in 2016, decided to leave and pursue uh, my own ideas. Um, wanted to get back into starting companies and um, was very focused on the concepts around security and privacy and uh, and so on. Um, and then rather strangely, a twist of fate, I, uh, I got phone ported or SIM swapped, uh, which is um, a... Uh, a security issue that uh, many people have faced within the crypto space. And I was lucky enough that the, uh, the, the hackers, the attackers didn't uh, access anything very significant for me, especially on the crypto side. Um, but this experience really activated me into thinking through uh, what kind of businesses would be important um, and led me into uh, looking at the VPN space quite carefully. Um, and uh, this was shortly after people started playing around with ERC-20s and uh, the kind of idea of using Ethereum as the blockchain and developing your own currency. Um, and so inspired by these uh, different experiences and trends, um, uh, together with my co-founders, uh, developed this idea around Orchid. Uh, we were fortunate enough to um, meet some great uh supporters, uh, including Andreessen, Sequoia, uh, Blockchain Capital, uh, Naval Ravikant, um, Polychain, and then also internationally, others, including FBG and Fabric. Um, <clears throat> so over the next uh, couple of years, we developed this idea further. And then in uh, December of last year, we launched our network. And uh, we were lucky enough to be picked up by Coinbase, uh, which we're now trading on. Um, with our currency, and we also have a uh, Coinbase Earn program, and people can go and learn about Orchid and um, and get hold of some Orchid for themselves by watching videos and learning about the uh, the technology and product. So you got into the space really early, like you said, and was part of the team that uh, founded Pantera. What did you see back then? What drew you into this space when? Most people, you know, didn't really pay attention at that point. Yeah, it was, um, I, I've been lucky enough to be part of um, kind of the early phase of a number of different technologies. Um, I was doing a PhD at Cambridge when uh, the Mosaic browser came out and then Netscape um, and hung out with a lot of early internet entrepreneurs in, in England at the time. Um, and the also, another pivotal experience was being part of the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, space when Nutella and Napster, uh, which is around the music file sharing um, trend that started that period. Um, and the thing I noticed uh, in common with those experiences was that going to the first uh, conferences, I think in New York in June of 2013, I just, I, I found myself surrounded by just people from all walks of life and the one thing they all had in common was that when they found Bitcoin, they just stopped everything and focused on it. And uh, it wasn't just engineers. It was also... Why was that? Why Why did they stop? I don't know. But <laughs> the, the thing... No, I mean, like, well, why... Uh, I'm just curious. Back then, it was a really small group of people that, like you're saying, stopped everything and just decided to focus on this, you know, digital currency that most people, again, didn't really care much about. What was it about Bitcoin that uh, you think people found so exciting and maybe you found so exciting? Um, 
for me, the, the general concept of uh, decentralization, um, it, it's all, the, the, the sort of principles of the internet for me were all about decentralization at the beginning and um, the kind of uh, the centralization that we've seen over the years uh, has always felt weird to me. Um, and this technology, Bitcoin, came along and was promising to decentralize really the some of the very most centralized systems we have in the world around banking and finance. Um, and even then at the time, we, we were starting to talk about things like smart contracts. We didn't quite know how it was all going to play out. But um, even before Ethereum, we were, we were thinking through uh, how we could use uh, this immutable ledger, this, this sort of essentially this, this right once uh, database um, that's fully distributed to do uh, different applications and um, build different kinds of uh, new systems in the world. So I think that was, that was really one of the, the powerful things to me. Um, I was especially interested in the idea of building banking for the unbanked. Um, if you think about uh, how wireless mobile technology uh, really leapfrogged uh, the the idea in, in in many developing nations. The the concern was how do we get telecommunications to people when we can't lay fiber or um, lay cables um, just because of cost and uh, and development infrastructure. And if you can just leapfrog that using wireless technology, which is actually what happened, um, the idea here would be that instead of having to put an existing copy the existing banking structure, what if you could put in a completely new kind of banking structure? So that seemed to me a very powerful, um, uh, very global kind of trend that will be, will be exciting to be part of. Makes sense. So let's talk a bit about uh, ORCID. What is ORCID Labs, Stephen? Well, the simplest way of thinking about it is it's a, uh, it's a bandwidth marketplace. It's a marketplace for where people um, are able to buy and sell a resource um, that they have available in this case for uh, for the the application we've chosen initially, which is uh, virtual private networks or VPN. Um, the idea with Orchid is that instead of an, a conventional relationship with a VPN provider, you're um, you have a client, uh, you're paying for a service, or perhaps you're watching ads to get it for free in some way. Um, although I have concerns over free VPNs. And VPNs are used um, extensively globally uh, in the West. We tend to think of them as perhaps a way to access content in another country. For example, uh, when the uh, when there's a um, international uh, football match, soccer match in the US, um, on the BBC, I'd like to watch that coverage. But uh, because I'm in San Francisco, I'm prevented from looking at the BBC. So I might use a VPN to access that content. Um, in other parts of the world, uh, that kind of content restriction is even more significant. Um, so many parts of the world have uh, very strict government controls. There are big firewalls, including the Great Firewall of China, that prevent people from accessing content and also, of course, publishing content. Um, so this is not just a, an access issue. It's also a publishing issue for many people um, in terms of getting information out. And I think uh, if you've become aware a little bit of um, the kind of censorship that happened in China uh, in the early part of this year around what we were talking about earlier, COVID-19, uh, we start to see how relevant um, the ability for people to access uh, information globally and, and be able to publish that information quickly uh, becomes. Um, 
And on another level, uh, <clears throat> we've seen um, a very strong trend towards um, government and also corporate surveillance of individuals and uh, using a virtual private network, especially the ORCID one, can prevent that on a number of levels. So how is ORCID different than other VPN networks? So the, f- the first thing that's different is, is that um, <clears throat> with our client, you're not buying service from ORCID, you're buying it from a network of VPN providers, each of which is advertising their services and each of which um, actually gets paid eventually in our currency, OXT. So the, the entire network is provisioned using this cryptocurrency, the ORCID cryptocurrency, um, and providers of VPN services are compensated for that, that, that provision uh, using OXT. Um, so that's one very important difference. You're not having to use a credit card to subscribe to a service. Uh, it's also pay as you go. So you pay for the bandwidth that you use, not for um, a, a subscription model, which is which is unique to us. Uh, and another interesting addition is, is that we're able to string together multiple VPN providers um, and what we call multiple hops. And what this does is it means that you're, IP address, which is an important variable people use to identify you, is now um, hidden from the website or the internet resource that you're trying to access, um, and there's no kind of no, no way for you, someone to track for you on that uh, on that particular variable. Uh, got it. So basically, the claim is this is even more private than using a VPN. They don't even know your IP address. Correct, and they don't know your credit card information and so on. So, how do you stay compliant? Because the flip side of this is governments, right, and agencies, pretty much worldwide, being worried that a solution like this can be used for illegal purposes. I mean, with any technology, there's um, potentially different usages of it. Of course, uh, I think the way that we would put it is that uh, we're trying to give you the VPN that you thought you were buying. Um, and if a government and many governments have, um, decided that, uh, VPNs, et cetera, um, are not something that, um, is a good thing for their society. That's, that's out of our control. Uh, so you don't, you don't try to be compliant or work with the government in order to make sure this is kind of in line with existing regulation. Uh, if the if Apple or Google or other providers of the application um, are uh, are providing it, then then they're they're in compliance, and we're obviously in compliance with those regions. Um, but obviously, we have we have a certain worldview about uh, providing these tools and uh, improving people's ability to uh, access content. Um, and sometimes that worldview may be at odds to uh, to particular regimes. Got it. And are there, in your mind, are there different types of privacy? Like, how are you thinking about that? Well, yeah, there's certainly different levels that you should be aware of when you're using uh, any tool that, that claims to give you privacy. And at Orchid, we try to um, be very transparent about what our application does and what it doesn't do. Um, but certainly... Across the world, there are um, uh, various different techniques for people to track you. Um, 
And so I think the smarter we can all become about uh, what's going on out there and the different application level tracking or location-based tracking that, that could be done to you, depending on who your adversary is, uh, are important things for everyone to be aware of. Right. And how does Orchid differ from other privacy crypto networks out there? You know, Monero, Zcash that you mentioned earlier, Aztec, and so forth. Oh, those, those are all quite different things. Um, so Zcash is providing um, a, uh, well, it's got a currency which has two, two different mechanisms. There's, there's different addresses you can use in Zcash, but using a Z address, um, you are able to uh, hide the information about um, the the currency, the, the, the information about the transaction that has happened. So unlike Bitcoin, where you can, uh, track everything that's happened on a blockchain. If you use Zcash, then that's that's not the case. Uh, Aztec's doing something quite different with zero knowledge proofs on on Ethereum. Um, we we definitely are uh, talking to a number of people who are working on similar kinds of ideas, and uh, I'm partnering with people as appropriate. Yeah, and are you also ERC twenty like Aztec? Uh, we're an ERC twenty token. Um, a little bit different to Aztec. Um, so our token is, uh, our currency is used um, for uh, payment of services on the system and then also staking. So the way that staking works in Orchid is that if you are a node provider, you stake um, enough OXT to basically advertise the service that you have available. So there should be some parity between the amount of OXT you're staking and how much bandwidth service uh, you're capable of serving people with. Did you at any point consider building Orchid on top of another smart contracts platform? Why did you decide to build on top of Ethereum? Um, primary reasons Ethereum, and first of all, it's got the largest uh, developer base and um, uh, support for um, Ethereum-based tooling and um, applications uh, of anything else out there. Um, it's also the most decentralized by design. Um, and there are, there are issues with uh, building something like Orchid um, with a, a platform that, uh, for example, you know, a handful of people or a central entity could um, could change in some way. So those are the, the primary reasons we looked for it. Right. And where are you in terms of the product lifecycle, Stephen? You talked earlier about, you know, you started working on this in 2017 and you're live on many exchanges with your token. What's next for you guys? And if you can talk a bit about use cases that you see right now. Um, <clears throat> so as I said recently, we, we've just announced that we're providing Orchid for free to journalists. So we do think that, um, especially in a time like this, it's important that uh, people have access to tools like this that can protect their privacy and allow them to, um, to communicate in a sensor-free way. Um, we... Uh, we're working very hard right now to um, increase the global availability of OXT um, uh, with um, other other networks other than Coinbase, uh, and then we're also um, working on uh, making Orchid the application uh, easier to use for people and um, different ways for people to get access to it and uh, really improving the user experience um, significantly there. And why do you think it's important at this time to provide that free access? Is it because you think some people are being censored or like what's behind this line of thinking? 
Um, well, recently China moved to uh, expel a lot of international journalists from from that um, from that region, um, and then again in China we've seen a lot of uh, censorship happen around um, this issue, uh, COVID nineteen. I think somebody uh, just today published um, the uh, a, a report a transcript of an interview, an important interview that was being censored, and they, they published it on the Ethereum blockchain as a way to get that data out. We've seen also people um, translate important um, interviews with doctors in China, um, translating them into fake languages like Klingon, um, and uh, even using emojis to, to translate language, the, the transcripts. So we are seeing this challenge right now of um, some governments trying to control the, the narrative flow um, and present uh, perhaps a different picture to the reality that's happening or things that have human rights abuses that are happening. Um, the situation in Hong Kong um, has continued to evolve uh, even during this period. Um, and uh, there are reports from the Human Rights Foundation of the rule of law not being respected currently in, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, I think that unfortunately, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely a uh, a proportionate response that governments have to make to um, enforce uh, these new rules they're putting in place. But um, when these things come at the expense of human rights and um, when information is not being um, widely circulated or censored, um, there's definitely a cause for concern. And what's your take, uh, Stephen, on the regulatory environment in the US with regards to crypto? We see some companies, for instance, I had uh, Mans Harmon, the CEO of Hadera Hashgraph, recently on the show, and he talked about how important it was for them to be based in the U.S. They thought it's important on several different levels, and so that's what they did. On the other hand, you know, you see other companies, right, that are complaining about the lack of clarity with regards to regulation for instance, Circle, and are moving some of their operations offshore. How are you thinking about the regulatory environment? Do you see progress on that front? Do you think we will see progress in the near future? Or it's really tough to see something like that happening anytime soon? Well, um, so we also made a choice um, years ago, three years ago, I guess, um, to uh, continue to be based in the United States. Um, and uh, we, we are continuing to do that. Um, we are uh, expanding operations to Berlin, and this summer we'll be uh, putting a team together there, really taking advantage of the uh, very strong crypto um, development uh, teams that are available there. I think on a regulatory front, it's, it's a little challenging for me to, to comment um, too specifically. I think one of the things that's uh, exciting to us, we've seen some personnel changes in the U.S. government. Um, recently, Brian Brooks, uh, who was uh, Coinbase chief legal officer, um, is leaving Coinbase to um, to become the second in command at the U.S. office of the uh, the OCC, the Comptroller of the Currency. So that's a big move um, for the United States government to put somebody who's obviously so pro crypto currency um, friendly um, in a in a very important position and. Um, I spent time with Brian in the past chatting about things and um, excited to see uh, see how that move plays out. I think that, um, you know, like I said, I, it's, it's hard for me to comment in general um, and too specifically on this issue. Um, but uh, 
I am confident that we're going to start to see a, uh, a lot more clarity around this issue um, over the next year or so. Yeah, you think so? I mean, certainly in my conversations with, um, with government people uh, in D.C., um, the, 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 the feedback that we're all trying to give them is that um, if you think about it from a, from a local area perspective, it, it's, it was, um, I guess it's, it's been surprising to me over the last three years that uh, it's the only period in time that anyone has ever said to me uh, in the sort of 20 odd years I've been um, working out of San Francisco and Silicon Valley that, that this wasn't the best place to start a company for a particular thing. Um, and I think that that message is now starting to get through to uh, the government that um, this is this is an important thing that's here to stay. And uh, if we, as a country, make it harder for people to uh, build these kind of businesses, then um, that's going to lead to a brain drain to other countries. And I think we've already started to see some of that happening, um, given the kind of global nature of, uh, of crypto companies that have developed around the world. Yeah. And how do you find the crypto ecosystem in San Francisco in general? Is it going? Or like if you compare it, say, you know, two or three years ago to when you started Orchid? Well, I mean, if I compare it to seven years ago um, when we started Pantera, um, that, was, <laughs> that was a different time too. Um, yeah. It's got, it's gone, it, <laughs> I'm sure. It's gone in waves. And um, certainly what's happening right now is, is, a, is an extreme global thing that's happening. But um, I think over the last year or so, we've started to see uh, companies getting past the point of just being ideas and um, and really growing into large and powerful companies like Coinbase, for example, is based here. Um, when you have those large, uh, powerful companies, and in the past we've had Googles, we've had Apples, um, Facebooks, Twitters, and so on, the, um, the diaspora or the people who come out of those um, environments after a couple of years and want to do their own thing, like I did with Pantera, um, they then start new things. And then they've got a, uh, a group of friends who they worked with or a network that they build. And then that's what leads to these, uh, and this is a, just the history of Silicon Valley, um, leads to these um, spin-off companies that uh, then get investment. And I think that from a conventional sort of startup history perspective, um, we should continue to see um, a healthy ecosystem, um, specifically on the West Coast, uh, and also, of course, in New York, where there's a lot more um, finance focus um, and trading focus. Uh, I don't see that diminishing. Um, I do think that one of the exciting things about um, <clears throat> the entire space is um, the ability for ideas to be funded, um, kind of whatever they are and wherever they are. And uh, we should always anticipate that a large majority of these ideas are going to end up not succeeding. And that's been the case in any um, bubble or investment wave. And I, I use the word bubble in not a particularly negative context here. Um, we've seen technology bubbles over the entire life cycle of, uh, of technology as a, as a thing. Um, <clears throat> so I can see these things um, both... Uh, I guess I think about it as Silicon Valley has always proven itself out to be a great place to scale businesses. Um, um, it's not always the place where things have started. Uh, Facebook wasn't started here. Um, uh, Skype wasn't started here, but often the operations and the scaling of these businesses um, 
then happens uh, with either with Silicon Valley resources um, or actually here. So we'll we'll see how that play that idea plays out. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting, right? My sense is right now crypto is probably more global than traditional tech in that. Of course, Silicon Valley plays an important role, no doubt about it. But I don't think it is as dominant as it is in traditional tech, right? Like, I mean, Facebook, Google, Apple, you know, all these companies, right, are based in Silicon Valley. I think in crypto, it's slightly different. But I wonder if it's going to remain that way or if it is going to skew more towards Silicon Valley as the ecosystem continues to mature. It's going to be interesting to see that. So thinking about the market more broadly, I mean, certainly in crypto terms, you have been involved in the space for a long time, both as an investor and more recently now as an entrepreneur. What are some developments or trends in the space that you're particularly excited about beyond, obviously, Orchid? Um, I'm hoping this year, um, so getting off to a bit of a punctuated start, but I'm hoping this year is a year that we start to see... Um, a couple of things happen. One is uh, more consumer usage of uh, applications that are crypto powered. Um, and I, I, I separate that idea from the idea that um, we're necessarily having consumers be aware of cryptocurrencies. Um, so that's sort of an important nuance and distinction. Um, I think that the, the more we can... Um, kind of get people using applications that are useful to them um, without the expectation um, that they necessarily have to hold cryptocurrencies or um, or know how to interact with them. Um, I think that's an important step for the industry. And I'm hoping this is the year that we start to see that happening, that suddenly one of the big directions we're going out this with Orchid. Um, I think that uh, decentralized finance is... Um, Another interesting space. Uh, we've seen some some kind of recent issues with um, what happened with Maker and also the uh, the uh, kind of the the hacks slash uh, manipulation of some of the flash loans um, in recent months. So <clears throat> I think people are starting to realize that that's um, an important area that's got a lot of interest, but there may be some issues with the infrastructure. Um, I think some of the the companies. Um, in the decentralized derivative space um, uh, will be successful there in perhaps building their own chains to solve some of these issues. So I think that's another area to look out for. Yeah, definitely some really interesting verticals that you mentioned. Going back to the first point you made, why do you think consumer adoption hasn't really taken off yet of uh, crypto? What are we missing? I've, I've always been actually pretty bearish on this. Um, this idea, even back to the earliest days of uh, looking at um, consumer Bitcoin applications. Um, I think we're starting to get more familiarity today with uh, the um, the use of QR codes and uh, just generally electronic payments. You know, tap to pay is now becoming quite a big thing, um, uh, whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay on phones. So that's quite a big shift from where we were seven years ago. Um, where people were still uh, signing for things. Um, so we're starting to get to the point now where we may have more consumer um, uh, kind of adoption or something like this, perhaps around a stable coin, um, for example. Um, 
So I think it's more just a question of which entity manages to get to market first. Uh, we've certainly seen um, messaging platforms, uh, whether it's Facebook with a Libra platform or Kakao in South Korea, um, Telegram also um, pushing this idea of uh, could we have a, a stable coin that's, that's moved between people in messaging platforms uh, in a decentralized way. So if one of those things hits and manages to take off, then I think that could be um, a, uh, a next step. Um, and certainly, as I was saying, with someone like Brian Brooks, who's um, really focused on the idea of uh, a stable currency um, on, a, on a national level in the US, um, we've seen a number of uh, governments uh, investigating the idea of using um, a, uh, a fiat-backed digital currency. Uh, that's not completely within my um, spirit of how I see these things, but it could be opening up to the idea of people using cryptocurrencies more generally. Makes sense. What's your view on Bitcoin these days? Um, well, it's still working. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm intrigued. We're laughing about it, but definitely a few years back, it wasn't clear at all. I mean, who knows how many times Bitcoin has been you know, written off during the years, right? Now it's almost like a, it's almost like a joke, right? It's like, yeah, Bitcoin, of course it's here. Like, it's not going to die anytime soon. I think it's um, it is interesting. I mean, especially with the the recent price drop, which was we saw Bitcoin correlate with all other assets as everyone just tried to move to cash as fast as possible. So I think that um, people still have these questions of like, oh, well, you know, we thought we thought this was uncorrelated, but now it's not. So is it any use? Um, it seems like every time anything happens, there's this question of like, what is the use of this thing? Um, but in general, what I've noticed in terms of sentiment over the the last seven years is that we have gone from this question that people had to me uh, many times um, <clears throat> in the early days of, is this thing sticking around? Is it here to stay? Is it, is it, is it going to be useful? And um, I think that question has gone away now. Um, now the questions are more like, well, what are these decentralized applications really going to be? And what's the first one that's going to be a killer app? So it's quite a different question now. Um, Bitcoin as, as a technical store of value in the sense that it's a decentralized way to store something that, that can't be taken away from you um, is uh, has proven itself out in that use case. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, less, I'm less excited about the idea that Bitcoin is the, the answer to all decentralized systems. Um, that was certainly a kind of Bitcoin maximalist concept for many years. And I feel like that, that question has really been answered in the negative and um, even like the guys in the Bitcoin core, they're really just focused on making sure Bitcoin continues to do what it's doing right now. Yeah, and I think the more you know, stuff like DeFi takes off, the harder it will be to make that the case for Bitcoin maximalism, right? The more we see other use cases for crypto and blockchain technology in general, the harder it will be to argue that it's all about Bitcoin. But uh, do you think Bitcoin took a hit, you know, with the coronavirus and Bitcoin going down so much so quickly? Do you think like the narrative of a safe haven or a store of value took a hit or are you still optimistic about it? Well, I think, I think what happened with Bitcoin over the years is that, that we, we encourage more trading in general and we wanted traders. Um, but traders are primarily focused on profit, of course. Um, and so... This recent drop, maybe what we've seen is a, is a drop to uh, 
the kind of store of value holders level um, and the, that extra um, premium was um, was more speculative. Um, but it, it's like this, people talk about what happens during these crises and uh, the answer is usually that the, 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 entire, the entire system correlates and, and moves in lockstep and comes down at the same time. Um, Given the quarterly easing programs and the sort of printing presses are now running again, uh, maybe we'll see people looking towards Bitcoin as a uh, as a safe harbor against that um, against that trend. But we'll see. I don't know. Hard hard to uh, to read the future here. Uh, last question, Stephen. You talked earlier about your team being distributed. There's a lot of founders listening to the podcast. Some of them have, you know, geographically distributed teams as well. Any best practices on how you manage as the CEO? How do you manage a geographically distributed team? Well, I think one thing that we've really tried to focus on is remembering that um, this, this is very much a human challenge right now for all of us, um, whether we're spending time with our families or whether we're spending time alone. Um, and so to the extent that in whatever organizations we're in, we can provide a sense of purpose and, um, and really a community. Uh, I think that's a lot of the things that people are missing right now. Um, so we've initiated things like we'll just start a zoom call and people just hang out and chat, um, while they're working as a way to provide community. Um, we've also, uh, been working hard to, um, provide the team with very specific goals during this period, um, short term and, Uh, for example, we've also pivoted to uh, working on um, desktop clients as an initiative uh, internally. Um, we have mobile first, but uh, we recognize more people are, are connecting from home right now. So um, desktop clients are going to be a, an important part of uh, our current focus. But I think just in general, I think it's really important for all of us to connect with one another and uh, keep each other going during this period. Um, it's easy to dive into Twitter and other news sources and get very scared and uh, and the kind of the, the fear becomes a virus too um, uh, I can't predict what's going to happen but um, I do believe we're going to get through this and the world's going to be a different place but um, but we will do things again with other people and uh, and our communities are, are, are going to survive I think a lot of people struggle with uncertainty of the current situation right like nobody knows how long this is gonna last for a really tough situation to manage when you know you don't know if it's like another week two weeks maybe it's a few months and the other thing is I think just the global nature of this really is unprecedented so Steven thanks so much for coming on the show really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights and I uh, really enjoyed the conversation thank Thank you very much. I really appreciate it too. And everyone stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.